I do hope and pray that you will uh, uh, redouble your efforts to come along on Sundays to uh, go through this uh, wonderful series, The Gospel According to Abraham. And I encourage you even to read through Genesis 12 to 25, the story of Abraham, um, and, uh, and to really pray that the Lord will speak to you uh, and that you hear from him and grow in your faith through this series. That's definitely my prayer for you. Uh, well, the fact is that some things are just too good to be true. Uh, here's an email from the BMW Lottery Department. Uh, the subject is Claim Your Car. Your email has been selected for a prize of a brand new 2018 BMW 2 Series and a cheque of 1.5 million US dollars from the international balloting programs held in USA. But the winning is, is for everybody contacted as a winner in any part of the world. Phew! Contact the claims agent with the code and your delivery details to claim your prize. Congratulations! Have you ever got an email like that? Have you been getting calls like that recently? Uh, some things are just too good to be true. Well, what about God's promise to Abraham? Is it too good to be true? Have a look at Genesis 12, verses 2 to 3, God's promise to Abraham. We're going to be going through this passage this morning. God says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you and make you your name great so that you will be a blessing i will bless those who bless you and the ones who curses you i will curse and in you all the families of the earth try and wrap your head around that all the families of the earth will be blessed some things are just too good to be true is this one of those things is it too good to be true friends it's impossible to overstate the importance of God's promise to Abraham in the overarching narrative of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And I want you to notice that the promise is a fourfold promise. Look with me in verses 2 and 3. Firstly, God promises Abraham a place in verse 1. He says, go to the land that I will show you. And then down in verse 7, you'll see he says, to your offspring I will give this Land. It's the promise of a place. God promises to Abraham a people. I will make you of you, verse 2, a great nation. And then again in verse 7, he talks about to your offspring. So the great nation will be Abraham's offspring. It's also a promise of protection. In verse 3, have a look. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. I'm going to protect you. And finally, Probably the biggest one of all, God promises that he has a plan in verses 3b. In you, all of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God promises a place. He promises a people. He promises protection. And he promises that through Abraham, he has a plan to bless all of the families of the earth. And friends, this is the overarching story of the whole Bible. The story of the Bible, the story of the kingdom of God is about God's people in God's place, under God's rule, and enjoying God's blessing. That's the whole story of the Bible. And I want you to notice that, this, that the promise can be summarized with one word. And it's, it's, in, it's in verses 2 and 3, and the word is this, blessing. 
Verse 2a, I will bless you. Verse 2b, you will be a blessing. Verse 3a, I will bless. Verse 3b, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's God's character. That's God's nature. That's who God is. He did it in the garden. He he blessed the things that he made. He blessed the people. He blessed the Sabbath day. That is who God is. And I want you to notice three things about this promise. The first thing I want you to notice is that the promise is unconditional. Look at verses 1 to 3. You'll find the phrase, I will, occurs four times in just three verses. I will. And then verse 2, you'll see you will. You will. And then again in verse 7, you'll see God promise, I will. Now that's the language of promise. I will. I will do this. I will do that. God is saying, I haven't done it yet, but I promise you, I will. This is God's promise. But here's the really cool bit. Because we've looked at the phrase, I will, in verses 1 to 3. But can you see the phrase, if you? In other words, I will, if you. Can you see any qualifications? Can you see any conditions? I will if you. I can't see any. I can't see any qualifications in there. If you do this, if you go to church, if you behave yourself, if you're a good Christian, if you don't go off the rails, I'll do this if you. No. God's promise to Abraham is unconditional. He's not putting any qualifiers or conditions on it. He's just saying, I will do this. I'm going to bless you. Try and stop me. I'm going to, through you, I'm going to bless all of the families of the earth. Try and stop me. I will. God's promise is unconditional. But I want you to notice another thing. God's promise to Abraham is undeserving. Because first of all, what we've witnessed so far in the book of Genesis is that the human project hasn't gone so well. Some might even call it an unmitigated disaster. Not on God's side of the equation, but on the human side of the equation. Let's think about it. Genesis chapter 3, the fall, Adam and Eve, with all of the blessing that God laid out in the garden, Adam and Eve turned their back on God and plunged the whole world into disarray, sin and disaster. That's the first big human event in human history. The next thing, what's the next big event? It's that God looked at the human race and he saw that every inclination in the heart was only evil all the time. Genesis chapter 6 verse 8. And that's the flood. So we've got the fall, then we've got the flood, and then finally in Genesis chapter 11 we've got the tower where they get together and decide that they're going to make a, a, a tower up to God to sort of bring him down from the heavens. A, a kind of um, plotting against God. You've had the You've had the fall, you've had the the flood, and then you have the the tower. And so human history thus far has been marked by rebellion and rejection and resistance to God. So what do you think they deserve? I mean, surely at least some time out, right? I mean, surely like grounded for a week or or, or something like that? But no, (laughs) no. In the face of all this brazen rebellion, turning back on God again and again and again, God says in Genesis 12, 2 to 3, I will bless. I will bless. I will bless. (laughs) 
in the context of Genesis 1 to 11, this blessing is totally undeserved. <laughs> well, you might say, well, at least Abraham got it right, you know, last man standing. At least there was one. But if you have a look at Joshua 24, verse 2, it reads, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your ancestors, Terah and his sons, Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates and served other gods. So what was Abraham doing when God called him and when God said, I will bless you? What was he doing? He was serving other gods. <laughs> this is undeserved. Friends, if you think God's blessing depends on you getting your act together, you've got the wrong God. It's not the God of Abraham. You've got the wrong God. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 said, God chose the foolish things of this world. God chose the weak things of this world. God chose the insignificant things of this world and the despised things, the things that are nothing. God's promise is unconditional. It's undeserved and it's also unbelievable. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I don't mean it's unbelievable as in not able to be believed, but the other, other definition which is so great or extreme as to be difficult to believe. That God would show such kindness and desire to show such blessing to such a rebellious people or person serving other gods. And as if to ram home the point, God says it five times in just two verses. I will bless, you will be blessed. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Do you get the picture of what kind of God I am? After all they've done. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And the thing that I love about God calling Abraham when he was serving other gods, when he was at his absolute worst, is that it meant he could be absolutely certain that God's love for him didn't depend on him being at his absolute best. Paul says to Timothy in chapter 2, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 1, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what I think that means for us and for Abraham is that it means that on the days when you're at your absolute worst, when Abraham was at his absolute worst and he's sure that God has given up on him, he can look back to the day that God called him and say, if God was able to love me then, if God was able to choose to pour out his blessing upon me on that day, then I have no doubt that God is able to bless me and to pour out his blessing and kindness to me on this day when I'm at my absolute worst. Again, that's what it means to be strong in the grace that is in the Christ Jesus, is that it's a pure gift of God's goodness and kindness to us, utterly um, independent of our performance. 
whether we're having good days or bad days. And so if I'm the prodigal son and, and, no, and think back to how God called me when I was in the pig pen covered in pig poo and I find that I've gone there again for the thousandth, thousandth time, I can think back to that day when he was a long way off and he saw me covered in my shame and my filth and he ran out to meet me and he wrapped his arms around me and he covered me with kisses. If he loved me then, then surely he loves me now. Be strong in the grace. You see, one of the big problems with what our children have been taught today, that they're being told, be true to yourself, you do you, express yourself. But the problem is, when you're being true to yourself, which self are you being true to? Which self is the self that defines who you are, the real you? Is it the person you are on your best days, or is it the person you are on your worst days? And if it's the person you are on your best days, how can you be sure that it's not the person you are on your worst days? Which one is the real you? And surely the weight of those doubts is completely and utterly unbearable. No, Paul says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. As John Newton said, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great saviour. This is God's amazing grace to Abraham unconditional, undeserving, and unbelievable. But the next thing I want you to see in the story is the incredible tension. Because if you take the first part of God's promise, the one of a people, I'll make you into a great nation, and then you go back to uh, chapter 11, verse 30, which we look at, and you'll see Sarai was barren. She couldn't have any kids. But it gets even worse because then we take the second part of God's promise of a place. We see that down in verse 5 and 6, the place is the land of Canaan, right? God's promising uh, Abraham the land of Canaan. But there's one small problem with that promise, and that is at the end of verse 6, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. God promises Abraham a people. Sarai is barren. She can't have any kids. What, is he blind or something? God promises a place and the place is already inhabited by Canaanites. Can you just see a few promises, a few obstacles in the way of God fulfilling his promise? Friends, this is the incredible tension of God's promise. How can a sinful and rebellious people actually enjoy God's blessing? How can a barren woman become a great nation and be the source of blessing for the whole world and how can a handful of a tiny handful of people possess a land that's already possessed i want you to see the incredible tension between the promises of god which are huge and the pain of life that abraham faces And what we're going to see through the story of Abraham is that there are all kinds of ungodly ways for kind of dealing with that tension between the promises of God and the pain of life. The first way to cope is through denial. We pretend that everything's okay and we put on our happy face. We're not honest about how hard life is, so we don't lament. We don't cry out to God and say, God, this isn't right. We deny the reality. Another way to cope with the tension is through despair, where we totally give up our hopes and dreams and we just give in to the reality of what we're facing, the pain of life. We just assume that whatever we've got is as good as it gets and it'll never change. 
Or the third way to cope through that gap is through determination, where we try to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and make, take matters into our own hands instead of trusting in God. If God won't do it, I will. We actually see Abraham do this a lot in the story, taking matters into his own hands. We can cope with this tension through denial, through despair, and through determination, but all of these things boil down to a lack of faith, a lack of trusting in God's promises. Your vision is too small. When God promised Abraham a great land, as far as the eye could see in every direction we'll see in the next chapter, I wonder if Abraham would have been thinking, well, Lord, how about just a few paddocks for my sheep and a couple of acres for my family? I'd be more than happy with that. And when God promised him to be become a great nation, later we'll see Abraham was like, Lord, this whole promise of a great nation thing, it's not really working out with Sarai. She's barren. She can't have any kids. So how about I sleep with her servant and we have Ishmael and, and we'll just leave it there, you know, just one kid. I'm happy with that. Friends, you see, the point is that big promises make big demands on our faith. God says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, all nations, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I commanded. And we say, Lord, is it okay if we just go to church on Sundays? God says, I desire that none should perish, but that all should turn to him and live and have eternal life. And we say, Lord, can you just bless the youth group? God says, I wish that you were on fire for Jesus, transformed into his likeness like you one day will be. And we say, Lord, can you just get my kids to clean the room? Friends, big promises make big demands on our faith. So let me ask you, how's your faith going? How's your faith in the one who's able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. How's your faith going? Have you given up on God, the one who raises the dead? answers to prayer can take five years they can take 20 years they can take 50 years they can take innumerable lifetimes after you've gone as it did for Abraham friends have you given up on God how's your faith going the fact is that all too often we don't really expect anything dramatic in our lives or in the lives of the people around us, even though we and they so desperately need it. Our faith is too small. Your vision is too small. We've gotten comfortable with going through the motions and all of our religious repetition that we find it so hard to hope for any change. Your faith is too small. And we get so utterly overwhelmed when we see how sinful we are or how lukewarm we are or how pathetic our prayer life is because we don't believe in the resurrection power of Jesus that gives beauty for ashes and gives oil for gladness for a spirit of despair. Isaiah came to me 
54, sing, O barren woman, you who did not bear, burst into song and shout, you who had not been in labor. For the children of the desolate woman will be more than the children of her that is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the size of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. You'll spread out to the right and to the left and your descendants will possess the nations and will settle the desolate towns. Hear the word of the Lord. So the thing I'm praying for you and the thing I'm praying for me is, Lord, increase our faith. I believe. Help my unbelief. Would you join me in that? Lord, increase my faith. You know, faith is a gift. You know what that means? It's, it's comes, someone has to give it to you. And we're called to ask for it. Lord, increase my faith. If you need prayer for faith in whatever you're facing today, can you make sure you, after you come forward for communion or before you leave, you ask someone to pray? I haven't organized anyone to pray, but I've got faith. Get prayer. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. By the way, I think that's part of what Abraham is doing in verses 6 to 9, where we see him walking throughout the land and setting up altars and calling on the name of the Lord. We see him go to Shechem in verse 6 and then Bethel in verse 8, where he says it says he built an altar to the Lord and invoked or called on the name of the Lord. And then he goes to Negev in verse 9. And part of what I think he's doing is he's taking hold of the promises of God. He's walking throughout the land and saying, Lord, it's not mine yet, but you've promised it to me. And so I'm going to call out to you to give, give me the land. He's calling out to God. We've seen amazing grace in verses 1 to 3. We've seen this incredible tension in verses 4 to 9 between the promises of God and the pain of life. And then last of all, we see the inevitable test in verses 10 to 20. Because the first test is in the contrast between verse 7, where God says, I will give you this land. And then look at verse 10. It says, now there was a famine in the land. The famine was severe in the land. This is a test. God says, this is the land of blessing. This is the land where I'm going to bless you. And there's a famine in the land. It looks like the land's cursed, God. You said it would be a land of blessing. So I've got an idea. I'm going to go down to Egypt because I can see that there's blessing there. I mean, that was the food basket of the whole region. You think of the River Nile. That's where I'll go because I can see the blessings there. Now, if you do a word search in the Old Testament of Egypt, you will very quickly learn that Egypt was synonymous with turning your back on God. Just think of um, Pharaoh and the ten plagues uh, and look throughout the Old Testament. It's everywhere in the Bible. Egypt was synonymous with putting your trust in human strength as opposed to putting your trust in God, staying where you are and trusting in his promise, walking by faith and not by sight. So God says to Abraham, I, Abraham, this is the place where I'm going to bless you. And Abraham says, well, there's a famine here. This is not what I want for my life. This is not the blessing that I'm after. Uh, so I'm going over there. Because even if God's not there, that's where I can get what I really want because I don't actually want God. I just want the goodies. 
So I'm not going to stay here in the desert where there's a famine. I'm not going to call out to God and cry out to him. You say, well, come on, Kieran, like there's a famine there. What's he supposed to do? Well, I I think what he's supposed to do is what he did in verse 8. Built an altar and call on the name of the Lord. Lord, how am I supposed to be here when you you, you promised to bless me here and there's a famine here? I say this because it's interesting. In verse 10 to 16, 10 to 16, where he's coming up with all of his plans for what, how he's going to cope, are the most godless verses in the entire passage. There's no mention of the Lord. But if you go back to verses 7 to 9, when he's walking through the land, you'll see it say four or five times, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. You can see God's hand everywhere. Abraham can see God's hand and he's trusting in God's hand. But then in verses 10 to 16, he's not even mentioned once because Abraham is taking matters into his own hand. He's going, God's not here. I need to sort this out myself instead of staying put where he is and crying out to God. And then he comes up with this crazy plan to protect his his wife Sarai from Pharaoh, uh, which includes a whole lot of lying and putting them both in all kinds of danger by taking matters into his own hands and so I wonder how much time do you spend coming up with crazy plans instead of calling on the name of the Lord think about your plans at the moment how much time are you spending calling out to him I'm not talking religious stuff I'm talking about the bills and your plans much time do we spend coming up with crazy plans that end up actually making the whole thing a train wreck like Abraham here instead of calling on the name of the Lord that's what he wants to do it says Abraham walked with God he wants us to be in conversation with him about these plans trusting him crying out to him calling out in lament Lord why aren't you doing anything here by the way this is all in spite of God's promise of protection in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. Abraham didn't trust that God would protect Sarai. He didn't trust that promise and so he had to come up with some lying scheme to protect her and it just got them into all kinds of mess. But the good news of God's amazing grace and beautiful kindness in verse 17 is that the Lord steps in and Pharaoh gives back Sarai and, the full, and, and he fulfills his promise of protection because God's promise cannot be thwarted even when they take it off track. God has promised unconditionally that he'll bless. But friends, as we begin to wrap up, I'd be selling you short if I didn't show you how this story points us ultimately to the true and better Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, who left his country in glory and who left his kindred, the Father, and came to earth to seek us and to search us out and to begin a new nation called the church. I'd be selling you short if I didn't tell you how this pointed to the true and better Abraham, to whom God promised, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. And yet then he tested him by driving him out into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights where he had no food and no drink. And yet unlike Abraham, our true and better Abraham, passed the test with flying colors because he did not give in to the temptation. He did not uh, take matters into his own hands. He commended himself into God and thus became our perfect righteousness, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, who passed through the ultimate desert on the cross where he hung there and he cried out, I thirst, as God hung him out to dry on the cross for our sin. 
for our unbelief, for our taking matters into our own hands, for our lack of trust in Him. He never took matters into His own hands, though He could have called on legions and legions of angels, but He stayed right where God wanted Him to be, where He promised the place of blessing would be, which was on the cross, where He cried out a lament in His desert, My God, my And God answered his prayer, God answered his cry, God answered his lament by raising him to the new life, to resurrection life, and they're fulfilling our inheritance so that we belong to him and we know that our security is sure because he always keeps his promises. And so now, because we know that our inheritance is perfectly secure because God always keeps his promises, we can go and do likewise with Abraham and we can leave everything behind, take up our cross and follow him knowing that the glorious inheritance that we have for him is far better than any family, kindred, country that we might leave behind. It's perfectly secure. God always keeps his promises. So let me ask you, what would it look like for you this week to leave it all behind and follow Jesus, trusting in the glorious inheritance that he has for you? secured through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the true and better Abraham. Can you take a moment to ask him now, what would it look like for me? Take up my cross and to follow him. Speak to us, Lord. verse 8 says by faith Abraham when he was called obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance he went out even though he didn't know where he was going for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose architect and builder is God let's pray Heavenly Father we thank you for your amazing grace unconditional unconditional deserve for those who put their trust in you. Father, help us to be blown away by your amazing grace. But Lord, in this incredible tension that we experience between the the promises of God and the pain of life, would you give us faith? Would you help us to cry out to you in lament? Would you help us to walk with you and to walk by faith and not by sight? And Father, when the inevitable test comes, give us confidence and assurance that Jesus has gone ahead of us to pass the test, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, so that we, Lord, are able to leave it all behind and follow him, knowing the blessing, I will bless, I will bless, I will bless. Lord, increase our faith, we pray in Jesus' name.